Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging that's happening. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning and happy May Day. Yeah, happy May Day or white rabbits. (laughs) All luck. Mm. All luck for us all. And uh, Solidarity Breakfast, uh, after Stick Together, kick off our 3CR special focus on workers news, politics, and uh, general celebrations. Absolutely. So, and how fortuitous that it lands on a Saturday oh, as well. No. Great sense of pride <laughs> for this grand <laughs> convergence of events. You yes, know. fantastic. Yeah. You went off last night to uh, oh, I've oh, been, Thursday. Busy bee. You know, Trades Hall is starting to become a regular occurrence. I'm getting, you know, levels of deja vu between days and days. <laughs> um, yeah, but last night I was at a Unions for Refugees event, and that was absolutely lovely. And then the day before, I went out and got some footage for um, the Victorian Trades Hall Council as they had their general sort of May Day meetings and discussion. And um, so much union representation, particularly at last night's event. It was very, very fascinating. Um, I I think I could at least count seven or eight different unions attending that refugee solidarity event, which is great to see. It was really, really great and lovely crowd too. Yeah. 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 So we we should probably just get straight into it, I guess. We've basically, we've got so much. We're like kids in a candy shop on some level. Um, Would you like to talk about what's upcoming for today and tomorrow? Um, oh, yeah, well, that's right. Uh, today there's going to be, uh, you may be aware that uh, our own, very own 3CR's uh, Joe Toscano is going to do a walk starting at 11 at uh, Argyle Place in Carlton where he's going to take people around and uh, take uh, a snapshot of uh, the anarchist undercurrents uh, of a, Melbourne's history. Uh, but also there's going to be a march from Trades Hall at 12.30, uh, which is celebrating uh, May Day on May Day. Uh, on Sunday, there's going to be the May Day committees 
uh, efforts and uh, apparently the barbecue is going to be uh, uh, kicking off earlier in the day and uh, they do think there's going to be kids' entertainments outside Trades Hall. Oh, lovely. Yeah, Mm. I think there's going to be talks and there's going to be definitely the march around the uh, block is going to be at 1.30, followed by some more speeches. So that's on Sunday. It may be a small affair, but if you if you go, you will make it bigger. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this is your day to show your struggles, talk with people, talk with union reps, talk with, with others about your struggles as a worker, and also to learn what has happened in the past and continue to look to future struggles because, you know, because you, we haven't won yet. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and unionism is ongoing. You know, it doesn't stop just on May Day. It keeps going. It's every day for every worker. Oh, it's lovely to have a day that it's a bit like, because uh, I come from a very large family, uh, mm. our um, special day was our birthday. And so oh. in a funny kind <laughs> of way, and we got a special ice cream and, mm. you know, things like that. Uh, so uh, May Day is a bit like that, I reckon. Hmm. You know, it's a worker's uh, special day. Yeah. Yeah. So, for today... Oh. The eight-hour day developed the concept of quality of life so that you weren't getting up out of bed every morning at five or six in the morning, working 12 hours, coming home and going to sleep to get up in the morning. You actually... The eight-hour day established the concept that people had a life of their own, they had friends, they had family, and they were entitled to enjoy their life rather than just for the sake of working. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, continuing the struggle for workers' rights everywhere. And that is correct. And, of course, last week was the celebration of uh, our memorial of the actual win for an eight-hour day. Not mm. that everybody's experiencing the eight-hour day anymore, but it's an incredibly important touchstone, which started in Melbourne, Australia. Mm-hmm. And it sets the benchmark for quality work. That's really what it's about. It's about ethical work, that we do actually have this proper balance between work and life. And it's such a simple concept. As well. So it's still very relevant and it's still very transitory. Yeah. Um, maybe more so now than ever with the gig economy. Yeah, um, yeah, that's exactly right. Mm. Um, you uh, uh, collected up some pretty interesting things from uh, the uh, Thursday gathering. Absolutely. So we had a lovely talk from Len Cooper, who we'll hear from in a second. He's the uh, May Day, he's the secretary for the May Day Committee at Victorian Trades Hall. Uh, then we've got, uh, look, I had to pick between about three or four. I've gone with Helen Woolley from the Venezuela Solidarity Campaign. It's an offshoot from the CFMEU branch, and um, she travelled out to Venezuela. A subcommittee. A subcommittee. Thank you. Absolutely. Stop <laughs> I'm an English this. teacher. What yeah, am I doing? Yeah. Stop, stop, stop this tree analogy. <laughs> yep. And then um, what have you got lined up coming forward oh, for no. today? And then, then aren't we going to hear from the migrant workers? Oh, potentially. Yeah, yes. no, we'll hear from the migrant workers. Yep. We're going to catch up with David Fox from Bendigo and because they're going to, uh, to talk about what's happening there for May Day. Mm-hmm. We're uh, potentially going to hear from... Um, David, uh, Peter Davis uh, from Over the Wall, if we've got enough time, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who looks is looking into what's happening with the um, NDIS. Yep. Uh, we've got This Is The Week That Was. And uh, following that, we're going to have a chat with Don Sutherland, who's uh, 
uh, an old hand um, in the union movement as a worker and he's got lots of uh, notions about uh, May Day as well as what are the big fights that need to be fought. Mm, especially uh, upcoming. We've got a lot you know, happening on the horizon. Oh, especially with uh, the Treasurer deciding that uh, he's yeah. going to pull out, pull out of the sack uh, the white rabbit of tax cuts mm-hmm. just before the election. Funny that. Mm. <laughs> They're such a tiled crew. You you were actually saying something very interesting about how it's a bit deja vu. These are people without yeah. any policies. Yeah, absolutely. I I just feel like we're we're stuck in two thousand and six again when Howard was going through work choices, which is the omnibus bill that we've had recently. We've had um, the carbon capture and storage policy come back, and now suddenly we're reaching tax tax cuts again right before that critical election. You know, mm. it, it really really is deja vu. And I I must have been about ten or eleven. And I can still remember some of that footage, you know, it, it it's so familiar. And in the background, mm. we're still crushing the refugees and we're still mm. um, beating the drum of domestic violence. Absolutely. Oh, oh yep. what, what a wonderful world we live in. Mm. Anyway, let's hear from Len Cooper let's do it. and Better Things. So to start off the ceremony, I'd like to invite the Secretary of the May Day Committee, Len Cooper, to come up and say a few words. Thanks, Chair. I uh, won't hold you up long. Uh, It's great to see you all here. Uh, And I I wanted to just mention about May Day because we don't often debate May Day uh, uh, during the year in Australia. Uh, May Day, as we know, is International Workers' Day and has been celebrated as International Worker Day since about 1890, right across the globe. It's been the day to demonstrate workers' demands for a better life, decent pay and conditions, and improved living standards. And opposition to imperialist wars, because after all, workers are the cannon fodder in these wars. It's also a day to call for socialist society to liberate workers and all toilers from the constant challenges to their living standards and freedoms. In Australia, May Day has been celebrated since 1890, with public holidays in Queensland and Northern Territory for May Day. And in Victoria, where there's no public holiday, it was decided way back then in 1890 to to celebrate with a march on the first Sunday in May to maximise the opportunity for workers and their families to be able to attend, to get away because of work. So that's why the May Day Committee organised it on the first Sunday in May. So this year it's on the 2nd of May. Uh, Out the front here, in case you didn't know, out the front of Trades Hall, we assemble here, uh, you know, from any time after midday, uh, and then we we march off at about 2 o'clock, march through the city, come back, and both before the march and after we've got some speakers talking on really important subjects uh, like you'll hear tonight. Um, so we, um, May Day is not, I think it's important to say, May Day is not just about unions, although they're a very important part of May Day. Many community organisations struggling against the authorities are also an important part of May Day. For instance, the Adani movement 
uh, progress associations, churches, global climate change people and friends of the ABC, etc. Some of these you'll hear from uh, on Sunday on the speaker's platform. And then, of course, there's migrant and asylum seeker organisations who struggle for fair treatment to defend their democratic and human rights. They're also an important part of May Day. And, of course, then there are the left-wing political parties, various left-wing political parties, who also take part in May Day, as they should, and so on. So the political and economic system of international capital faces a deep and general crisis, and we're all experiencing it across the world. And, and obviously unemployment, poverty, misery and social alienation is more institutionalised than it's ever been. Uh, so that, uh, and, and certainly since the Depression. We witness overproduction, massive indebtedness, trade wars, stagnation of industry, all signs of a system in freefall. So May Day and workers' resistance and workers' solidarity and struggle against these wrongs are more important than it's ever been. We appeal to people to come along on Sunday to support the march and the speaker's platform and other activities. I, I understand from the weather forecast that it's going to be a beautiful 24 degrees on Sunday. So there's no excuse. We want you to come along, enjoy it and express your solidarity. Thanks very much. Okay. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, I'd like to thank the organisers for giving the Venezuelan Solidarity Campaign the opportunity to speak tonight uh, to all of our fellow workers about what's happening in Venezuela. Um, we know that today's a um, commemoration of tragedies that occur in the workplace, uh, and um, these tragedies that occur are, are avoidable. Uh, ultimately, they come down to the fact that uh, we live in a society where um, profits are in command, and that is what causes our tragedies. Uh, and however, unfortunately, it's not easy to change that system. In Venezuela, uh, they have changed that system, or at least they've made progress towards making changes in their system. Uh, and this has cost them the rage and the, um, the fuming of the international ruling class and, and the international bosses. Uh, and, of course, also the lapdogs um, that manage their, their system, the, the governments of the world. Uh, in 1999, the Venezuelans changed their system. The, the process as yet is not complete uh, and they have their own internal difficulties that they're going through uh, and they will deal with them but their main difficulty comes from outside pressure and that outside pressure comes from the biggest boss of all and that is led of course by the US government. So the gains of the Bolivarian revolution and that's what they call this process uh, are undeniable. The, the people have uh, improved um, social standards, they have improved free medical care, they have free university, they have virtually free utilities so they don't have any bills to pay. 
They have access now to land that uh, previously major absent landlords were uh, sitting on and doing nothing with. So the people now, the rural farmers, are able to take over that land and actually produce food on it. Um, there also is increased uh, participatory uh, democracy. So everywhere you go in Venezuela, you'll see small communities that band together. They'll, they'll organise themselves. They'll organise a collection of food. They'll organise their communities through this process. But not only that, that goes right up to the government level as well. So they're, they're, they're um, organising at the grassroots level, and that grassroots level goes up to, up to, the, um, up to the top echelons of, of government. Uh, and so these are some of the things that we learnt about when we were um, on a visit to Venezuela. They were, the, the people that we met were really happy to talk about the situation in Venezuela, what's happening there. They told us about the downside of things. They told us about, but most importantly, they were very proud of the upside of what's happening in Venezuela. Um, and, and, the, and it was that, that whole grassroots uh, uh, movement that they were happy to talk about. So the, the revolution at the, at the moment um, is uh, consolidating and strengthening uh, and, and, and it's more and more representative of the people and, and, and as I said, the grassroots uh, organisations are more represented in the government than, than ever before. Uh, these gains and benefits that, that Venezuela, the Venezuelan people have achieved, they are, they are not benefits that can be taken away from them. It's enshrined in their constitution in 1999 uh, Chavez said about forming a new, uh, writing up a new constitution, and so these are not gains, these are not privileges that can be taken away. Unlike the privileges that we have, where we gain a little bit, one step forward, and then we, they get taken away from us. These are enshrined in their constitution, and if you read the Venezuelan constitution, uh, it's inspiring. It's inspiring to read. You try and read the Australian constitution, and it's it's a pretty damn boring document. It needs upgrading. It needs. Um, uh, certainly needs some, something new about it. Not a preamble. A preamble doesn't... The, the basis of our constitution is, is really looking at our, 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 the structure of our system and, and, and saying how can we vote and how, how can we set up our government and so on. The Venezuelan constitution talks primarily about the needs of the people. It talks about how the, the, the natural resources are, um, are belong to the Venezuelan people and that the economy is going to be based around... Uh, the people, not, not profit. And this is really what the multinational corporations, led by the US government, of course, this is what they're fuming about. They're not interested in, mm, they're not interested in whether Maduro is a dictator. They've, they've put dictators in around the world in many places. So the primary thing that the US governments and, and the, the imperialist uh, multinational companies um, are most uh, concerned about is the fact that Venezuela is achieving great things from a very bad situation. The sanctions that are imposed, or they're not actually sanctions, that's an economic war, um, that, are, that are imposed by the United States are, um, are designed to cripple, cripple the working class, designed to beat the people into starvation and, and illness through lack of medical supplies and so on. Uh, and, and we call it an economic war, and, and that's what it is. The British government has stolen uh, $2 billion worth of gold from the Venezuelan people. They say they simply won't release it from the bank. It's been held in the British banks. The British say, oh, we're just not releasing it. They don't use the words that we're stealing their money. Of course not, but that's actually what's happening. They're stealing their money, and imagine 
In a country like Venezuela, where the people's needs are being put before profit, imagine how much money and where $2 billion worth of gold could go. And that $2 billion is probably an under underestimation anyway. It's probably a lot more. Um, so I, th I think when we read the Western media and we listen to what's being said about Venezuela, we have to accept that, that they are never going to tell us the truth either. The truth is that big business doesn't want us to replicate something like that here in Australia. The countries that are fighting you know, or, or operating independent economic systems are the countries that are coming under the most wrath or, or the, the most hatred of, of uh, Western media and, and US imperialism. Um, they're the countries that are trying to develop trade amongst well actually they're being forced to develop trade amongst amongst themselves and of course with an ever shrinking market and with an ever shrinking uh, profit profit base uh, the imperialists and the capitalists are, are becoming even more um, demanding in cutting back on wages they're cutting back on our uh, 10 years it's been since since Australian workers have had a, a decent or even a pay increase uh, across the board, that is. Um, and so you, you can guarantee, as Andrew said earlier, you can guarantee that the attacks on the working class here in Australia are going to be um, coming at us thick and fast. The hope that Venezuela gives us is that if they can do it, then we can do it. And of course, that's something that imperialism is watching very closely. Uh, and of course, that's what they hate. So that's, that's a reason why uh, we need to build solidarity with Venezuela. We, every nail in the coffin of imperialism, every nail in the co coffin of um, uh, the ruling class around the world means that they are weaker and that we internationally as workers, we're stronger. So um, we need to support Venezuela. We need to um, spread the word about what's happening in Venezuela. And, and while, while I talk about Venezuela uh, as an individual country, really I'd like to include all of the independent nations around the world that are, are doing similar things. So that's Cuba, um, you know, that's China, that's Russia, that's Yemen, that's Syria, it's, it's Iran, it's all of these countries around the world that our Western media is portraying as, as, as these vile um, dictatorships that nobody wants. And that's, that's absolutely not the truth. So... <coughs> Anything we hear in the Western media, we can basically throw out the door and say, well, they're, they're not going to be telling us the truth. Um, and, and so when I talk about Venezuela, I'd really like for everybody to think that I'm not just thinking Venezuela, I am. And the Venezuelan Solidarity Campaign as well, I was really thinking about the, the entire world situation. Um, so Venezuela... Um, the Venezuelan Solidarity Campaign, some of the things that we're doing um, uh, and, and we'd like people to get involved in, uh, in, in particular the Venezuelan um, government has established a world people's movement basically against uh, um, imperialism and they are setting up uh, international Zoom meetings um, to try and get a movement um, to, to come up with a an alternative world order, one that's based on the working class. Um, it's called the Bicentennial Congress and, and um, it's run in Venezuela in conjunction with a number of other organisations and it's inviting unions to join the struggle. And at the heart of their mission is to create a better world. So here's a, uh, a few of their goals, if I can find them now. One of the things they say, and I quote, 
Uh, today, amid the emergence of new mechanisms of aggression against the peoples of the world, the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela stands up to the foreign unilateral coercive measures that are rudely, illegally and extraterritorially applied to its population, bringing with, it, bringing with it suffering and setbacks in conquests and advances in welfare. And they go on to say, this is why today we appeal not only to the solidarity of the world with our cause, but to the deepening and articulation of coordinated agendas between social movements, political parties, unions and sectors of civil society in the world to face the harsh conditions facing the majority of the planet's population. And it goes on to say, the need to build a world order that starts from the premise of multipolarity polarity. Uh, and the development of a regional and global international agenda that places solidarity, cooperation and complementary um, among the nations of the world as its main axis, free from war, interfer interference and aggression. So that's primarily what, um, what this uh, world organisation that, that would like unions in Australia, unions around the world to get involved in. That's kind of one of their... That's, that's the, um, that's the basis of this movement. Uh, and in Australia, uh, in the Oceania region, uh, Paddy Crumlin uh, from the International Transport Federation, he is the representative, um, and uh, a lot of you here, I'm sure, would know Paddy Crumlin. Um, so if anybody would like to get involved in that, uh, the next meeting is going to be on the 3rd of May. It's via Zoom. Um, we are, we, well, we know that Maduro will be there. Uh, there may also be some other international leaders. Uh, there was mention of Lula da Silva. Um, if I said that properly? Silva, yeah. Um, and uh, Evo Morales. So if those people came along, it would be a, an absolutely uh, amazing international meeting. Uh, and if anybody would like to find out more about that, please see Luke Jojo or, or myself. Uh, some of the other things that we're doing, just, just as uh, very, very quickly, the campaign is running some fundraisers to raise um, money for a childcare centre in a really, really poor area that we visited. Um, uh, we're holding an event on June the 10th to raise money. We promised that over two years ago because of COVID, of course, nothing's happened. We promised that and we're going to stick to our promise to, to build this childcare centre. The people of Venezuela, like I said, from a grassroots level, they are not waiting for the government for handouts. And they don't, they're not handouts anyway. We are the working class. We, we make everything in, this country, in our society. Nothing that, nothing that we get is a handout. We make it, we create it, it should be our wealth anyway. But they're not waiting for the government to, to find a way to, to give them, um, to provide things for them. They're, they're working outside of that. They're struggling hard. The community wants every parent, every adult to be working. So in order to put the child the children in safe places, they need a childcare centre. So that's what we're raising money for. We also, there'll be an, there's a campaign against the, the economic war. We want to build that as much as we can in conjunction with Venezuela. Uh, and we're looking to send a delegation over in 2020. So if anybody's interested in coming along to that, that'd be awesome. And uh, finally, um, we are trying to develop a delegation of trade, uh, an exchange of trades. So if anybody, um, knows anybody that would be interested in going to Venezuela, working for six months or so, teaching people the trades, uh, or a profession like teaching English or, or anything that you can think of that, um, uh, that you could do to contribute to their society. Because of course, they've, like any country that's had a revolution, there's always a brain drain. People want to leave for all sorts of reasons. So 
uh, Venezuela is suffering that, suffering that as well. So, look, I'd just like to wrap up to saying that we all have a lot of work to do in all of the various campaigns that we're involved in. Um, and uh, no, one more no one campaign is anything more important than the other. Um, but, but what is important, of course, is that we, at some point, we unite over issues, uh, major issues that we can come together and, um, and fight a common enemy. And, and I think May Day represents that um, and has always done that. Um, so as I said earlier, any nail in the coffin of the common enemy of the working class has to be seen as a victory for all workers. And um, I'd just like to say, dare to struggle, dare to win. Thank you. So here in Fitzroy, we're less than one k away from the Workers' Monument and people walk past it every day and I think we need to have a day like May Day to remind us what that struggle was all about and what it continues to be about. Workers fought for the right to have eight hours work, eight hours rest and eight hours play. And if you think about your day, how does that stack up? It's as important as ever for workers to hold the line. Okay. Speak up. Everyone can see me? Yeah? yeah? <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm from Migrante Melbourne, the Filipino Migrants Workers, um, the Filipino Migrant um, Organization. I think the, the pandemic has shown us how invisible the migrant workers, especially those on temporary visas, and um, one of the sector that was badly hit was the international students. So way back in March, 23rd of March, Migrante Melbourne, alongside with its sister organization, Gabriela Australia, Anakbayan, PASA, um, and all the other um, organizations have come together to um, extend some support to international students. By then, there was a big noise that um, international students should, should just go home to their home countries. And true enough, by the first week of April, um, the Prime Minister said um, international students should just go home. So um, there was um, a mixed reaction in the community, even among us Filipinos, um, because um, for a long time, even as immigrants in Melbourne, we haven't really seen the international students. You know, they've been just silently working. A lot of them, majority of the Filipinos that come over as international students are actually workers already. They have been seasoned um, overseas Filipino workers from other countries. Um, so before they came here as international students, and most of them have just been tricked by dodgy uh, migration agents and also um, education providers. So. Um, we were the first, actually in the Filipino community, we were the first to offer help to the international students. Back then we were just thinking, oh, maybe because we don't have any money, let's just buy some milk and bread so we could at least um, you know, know where are these international students. And um, alongside that campaign, um, later on the Victorian government would offer so support and um, the Prime Minister would backtrack that statement that international students should not go. We know that they were funneling billions of dollars in the Australian economy by that time. Um, 
But for us in Migrante, we only got to have some form of support from the government only in November of 2020. And that's when we already knew that we are catering to more than a thousand students that are also workers um, only here in Victoria. So um, in Australia, we do have around 11,000 only Filipino um, international students. So there's a bigger population. And during um, our um, campaign and the welfare program, which we called the Mayan Migrante, we were able to um, give support from 23rd of March until now to more than a thousand students. They were scattered in all the metro regions and then um, we went all the way to Ballarat, Geelong and then to the Gippsland areas where we discovered that these international students were now forced to work in the farms. Um, of course, we know how bad the payment is and the conditions there. So, um, and at least now we do have a bigger audience in terms of um, broadening the, the situation to them of what is happening to them, that it's related to what's happening in the home country in the Philippines where a lot of the unionists of the um, women, children are, are being killed by the fascist Duterte regime. And, um, and also how they came here, not only as the issue around brain drain where they were already nurses, engineers, doctors, and then they just have to start again all over here um, as, as students. So um, we're sad, but we're happy also because um, we have that pool of, of new Filipinos that we now know where they are and we have um, a better grasp of their situation. So that now um, turned into a network. So we formed the support network for international students in September. So that is composed of different organizations and even mainstream ones. So now we are in the process. We already lodged a lot of complaints to um, DAGI um, education providers. So that's a big win because we started as students don't want to tell their stories. Um, even if they're paying three times higher as compared to other um, um, education providers. So we were able, at Migrante Melbourne, through the Damai Migrante, we were able to lodge um, close to 50 complaints to um, different government agencies. And um, there were little victories that we had. So um, a certain, um, like Lawson College in Dandenong was now downgraded their um, current level in terms of, um, they, they do have levels and all that. So, and, um, but we are ramping up that campaign and we have already um, connected with other nationalities. So Nepali students, Indian students, um, Chinese, name it. <laughs> All of the nationalities are there. And it's like they're competing to each other in terms of how awful the stories that they have in terms of exploitation in their workplaces and, um, as long as, uh, and also in their um, schools. Yeah, and alongside with this also, of course, is our campaign with those um, women who have been impacted by family and domestic violence. There's a big number that have just been um, shunned away by mainstream services just because they are holders of temporary visas, even if they've got children with them. So um, 
the mainstream organization that is being funded by the Victorian government are just saying, we cannot help you because you are on temporary visa. So some of them, they are in our homes, and that's very dangerous because um, their perpetrators, which usually are white Australians, are tracking them um, actively. So I think with all that is happening, um, as I said, we now know how grave the situation of migrant workers, how poorly they are paid, and um, their conditions are in work and in school are dire. And alongside that, the domestic and family violence that continue to rise, Philippines is now. Ah. In the whole of Australia, we're fifth. We're the fifth largest ethnic community, but we're almost third in terms of um, family and domestic violence. It's only China and India that is higher than us, which you know that they are like, their population compared to us is, that's a very big margin. So there's a lot of organizing happening on the ground. We're hoping in terms of international students that come June, we will have, we will be able to create a bigger noise um, because we will be um, planning to put up a campaign that would include everyone. Actually, it's already in the pipeline, so we have been doing meetings and all that stuff, and um, we have been collecting the narratives of these students. So the next level is to make these um, temporary migrants to be more politically aware and so that they will be able to be with us in our campaign, you know, against imperialism, capitalism, and all the ism. So, yeah, long live international solidarity. There was a, a methane gas blast at Anglo-Americans' Grosvenor mine. It was to do with the roof strata collapsing. Wayne is a successful industry worker. He's worked in it for 13 years, and he's worked at this particular mine since 2014. He knows the worksite intimately. One of the biggest things that he pointed out is that he confirmed that his requests and other workers' requests for pumping were not agreed to by management, quote, all the time. And this is particularly important because it points to why the roof strata would collapse in the first place. He described that there was an eight weeks, there was 14 reported high potential incidents of methane oh exceedance, right? And this in the industry is basically known as a near miss once or twice a week. In the lead up to this blast, there that's were these outrageous. regular methane near misses. Yeah, that's outrageous. Well, when the explosion happened, he got burns to about 70% of his body. Sellers told this inquiry that his crew was never once evacuated for each of these incidents. If you're a worker on that site, you can't help but feel like you must be the canary in a mineshaft cage. Too often, the workers of the world are denied a voice by the corporate-driven mainstream media. Community Radio 3CR is the voice of the workers. And we've got on the line David Fox from Bendigo. That would have been uh, a, quite a salient, sort of sobering uh, little message for a person who comes from Bendigo. The mining um, incidents in Queensland. Yeah, well, it's uh, certainly uh, with the... Well, what we're hearing in the mining industry right around, uh, well, it's, it's actually quite a dangerous industry to work in. And well, quite frankly, you know, safety is usually the, one of the number one issues along with uh, along with the wages and conditions side of it. But certainly it's always um, 
safety is one of the most primary concerns. It's a very dangerous industry. Um, and also, it's not just uh, those workers who are killed on the job, but also uh, even with work-related industries, uh, silicon dust, uh, black lung disease, um, various other lung diseases as well, but also other uh, other severe injuries as well. Yeah, yeah. No, Absolutely. Yeah, David, we, we've got you on here to talk to us about what's going on in Bendigo to celebrate May Day. Yes. Tell us about what's going on. Well, this day is May Day, uh, International Workers' Day. Uh, we made a council decision back in February to have our march and breakfast uh, on the 1st of May. Uh, it's certainly a historical um, decision uh, in that regard. So we, we hadn't had something like this for a very long time in, in Bendigo uh, for many, many years. Um, of course, the Bendigo, I think, was held back for a long time, I think, with many activities. And I think with you know, Luke Martin as the secretary and a few others now on the executive, including myself, we like to actually push things forward now. Um, and we've obviously made a first of May, a very important day for all workers around the world. And we actually like to be part of it. Uh, we don't want to actually be separate from it. Oh, that's really interesting because, of course, Bendigo... Uh, and you know Ballarat, places like that. In uh, historically speaking, were uh, basically the uh, financial and in, uh, engine of Victoria in those uh, you know the eighteen fifty years, sixties, etc. And it's all all on the back of mining and and migrant workers yeah. as well. Yeah. Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, it's actually quite an historical area, been in the central gold fields. I mean, both Bendigo and Ballarat um, share that history. And I don't understand, I mean, the actual goldfields rebellions first started in 1851, just down in Tuton there, the Forest Creek diggings, with the with the kicking off with the monster meeting against the gold tax, which wasn't just about not paying a tax, but how it was actually uh, brutally imposed on by a colonial government, a British colonial government. And we had the Red Ribbon Rebellion of 1853 up here in uh in Bendigo, and then all culminated in the bloodshed at Eureka on the 3rd of December in Ballarat. And But the struggle didn't continue from there. From out of that game, the first eight hours were won by when Melbourne uh, were workers inspired by the struggles. Obviously, stonemasons walked off the job in Melbourne on the 21st of April, 1856, and one of the first Labor Day marches ever uh, to be organised was on that same date, 21st of April, but in 1858 in Ballarat. And with the central goldfields have played a very significant uh, role in the establishment of the trade union movement here. I mean, uh, Bendigo Trades Hall is the third oldest trade hall, uh, trades hall in Australia. Um, Ballarat's the second and Melbourne's the first. Um, and they're all set up independently of each other and obviously to promote trade unionism and organise workers to obviously fight for their own interests. You know, it's funny too because even though there's this uh, increase in the ability to uh, communicate, I mean, I'm old enough to have been brought, uh, brought up in Warrnambool and when I was a kid, mm. people didn't travel the three and a half hours in car to Melbourne, right? We did because mm. our family came from Melbourne, right? So yep. we we were imports. But it was possible for people to be isolated in their minds in the space of the town that they were in. Now, you'd think that that would be impossible these days. But when it comes to uh, workers working together for a better future, in some ways it's still possible for people not to be cognizant of the things that are important in, say, Bendigo, for example, for workers. So what is important for Bendigo workers? 
Well, I think, well, look, we're workers are no, no, up here are no different from anyone uh, anyone else um, with their concerns. Obviously, cost of living, um, and, you know, obviously um, trying to make ends meet is always a big concern, primary concern for workers. Um, I'm trying to, and for the younger workers who have a mortgage, that's certainly a very big concern every day. I think, look, they're about two or three bar, um, payments from, uh, from defaulting on their mortgage, so it's always a big concern. Um, trying to retain a secure job as well, um, and yeah, and trying and as I said, making ends meet, paying the bills, the whole lot. I mean, that's always been the primary concern of workers: how they're going to survive day to day. And I think it's uh, I'm going through uh, some EBA negotiations, and the uh, first thing, and a lot of a lot of times, what's concerned on the, on the on workers' jobs is job security issue. They want to retain their job as much as possible because, especially in a regional area, if you lose your job um, and if a factory closes down or whatever closes down, it has actually a, a, a rip, uh, ripple effect. It's actually a flow-on effect to the rest of the community because once that closes down, uh, the chain reaction is that you know, eventually the shops close down and everything else, the, base of the, the community shuts down, basically. Um, and if you really lose your job, you may have to travel you know, another 100 kilometres somewhere for, for work. Uh, all move all together. So, and if you're paying off your house, um, and Bendigo's a growing region along with um, along with Ballarat, it's been growing for many years, and we're looking to actually probably have a population well, well past about 2050, 2060, over 250,000 mm. living up mm. here. Um, so, you know, and obviously, once you get self established, the last thing you want to be thinking about, well, if I lose my job, where I'm going to go? Um, yeah, yeah, you want yeah. to be established now, security. Yeah, well, because that's one of the things that happens for people in the country, isn't it? That uh, the family yeah. has to stay at the house and then the uh, key worker goes away for long periods of time. Yeah, and that's right. I mean, yeah, but I'm bad of actually some of the members I know um, that work around the various towns so they can live here. No, just half an hour, about an hour away. I've not people, no workers there, say, for example, at Puckapunyal, uh, which is just over an hour away from here. Um, working for, for example, the um, defence companies that um, have to travel from Bendigo and from other, even out from Shepparton. Um, I actually know workers, say, for example, working at LS Precast in Benalla. They're coming down all the way from Albury, Wodonga. Um, but also down from very um, down from Seymour and that, and it's actually when people think, oh, it's not that long to go, but it's actually quite a long drive, especially in the sense where you do it uh, if you're working extensive hours, excessive hours, um, and if you're going back to back twelve hour shifts, that's a huge, that's a big chunk of time out of day. And by the end of the week, you know, what actually another safety concern is when people are overtired. Yeah, that's uh, right. I was just going to say, free, that... even when they jump behind the wheel of the car, car yeah. Um, they're, they're much more prone to a road accident than they would have been first thing on a Monday morning. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, the um, uh, building of uh, the worker, local workers' interest in May Day, how have you gone about that? Well, it's, gonna, it's obviously only a slow slog. I think the most important thing is we need to educate the importance of May Day, uh, especially to younger workers who might not understand um, the historical... Um, Roots of Mold May Day uh, and the importance of importance of it back then, fighting which was historically linked to fighting for a shorter workday, uh, eight hours first of all, but um, and back in the eighteen hundreds. But most importantly, it's got to be actually connected to their current everyday struggles, their very current concerns. Um, it's got to be connected to everyday concrete reality. Um, we can put a great list of demands on there, but if it's not coming from the work as well, that's where they're going to feel. 
says, or what, what, what's our purpose doing here? So let's start with the bread and butter first to win them, um, win them over. Bread and butter issues for some people might not be exciting, but that's where the workers' primary concerns are there. That's where we've got to start with. And the importance of why we have to march on that day because it's an international day. Um, it's the opportunity to actually um, unite internationally with workers all around the world. As Karl Marx famously said, workers of all countries unite. And I think it's maybe it's such a it's also showing us such a powerful force that workers are uniting all over the country. Certainly, would actually have uh, have the, have our capitalist imperialist um, class will be completely worried if workers start realising that we have unity with workers, not just around our local regions um, and countries, but from all around the world, would we'll be a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much yeah. for talking to us, Dave, and uh, have a good day. Thanks, David. You too. All the best. Thank you. An iconic Happy May Day from the Concrete Gang. What does iconic mean, Brussels? I've got no idea. Let's do what we normally do. Dare to struggle. Dare, Dare to, to win. win. You don't fight. You, you lose. lose. Happy May Day. I hate the company bosses. I'll tell you the reason why. They cause me so much suffering And my dearest friends to die Oh yes, I guess you wonder What they have done to me I'm going to tell you, mister my husband had TB, brought on by hard work and low wages, and not enough to eat. Going naked and hungry, no shoes on his feet. I guess you'll say his lazy and did not want to work but i must say you're crazy for work he did not shirk my husband was a coal miner he worked and risked his life to try to support three children himself, his mother, and wife. I had a blue-eyed baby, the darling of my heart. But from my little darling, her mother had to part. These mighty company bosses they dress in jewels and silk but my darling blue-eyed baby she starved to death for milk i had a darling mother for her i often cry but with them rotten conditions my mother had to die well what killed your mother i hear these bosses say 
Dead of hard work and starvation, my mother had to pay. Well, what kill your mother? Oh, tell us if you please. Excuse me, it was pellagree, that starvation disease. They call this a land of plenty, to them I guess it's true. But that's to the company bosses, not workers like me and you. Well, what can I do about it to these men of power and might? I tell you, company bosses, I'm going to fight, fight, fight. What can we do about it to right this dreadful wrong? We're all going to join the union, for the union makes us strong. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when we celebrate May Day by learning True Blue Aussie is being governed by the dear baby Jesus, which probably explains a lot. And worse, good government is threatened by the evil one. And speak of the devil, it's reassuring to know our big supremo scuttlebim more lash son, a.k.a. scummo, while doing the work of Jesus, believes in the evil one who's getting pretty old, given his origins go back beyond when God, when Jesus made Adam and Eve, not equal, of course, and tempted them with an apple tree. Scuttlebem announced this big news while laying on hands and talking in tongues, which also probably explains a lot. So obviously Jesus has it in for people fleeing persecution, we asked his representative. My policy on concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, was given me in a dream by the dear baby Jesus, Scuttle them explained. The no proper papers, queue jumping illegal boat people might think it's more the work of the evil one, Scuttle them. There is no doubt, and the dear baby Jesus has no doubt, well, he knows everything. No doubt the anti-True Blue Aussie goody-goodies who defend these illegal criminals are being influenced by the evil one. Indeed, are doing the work of the evil one. And it is my job, acting on behalf of the dear baby, to prevent people in boats coming to this country and acting as if they own it. Uh, like uh, Arthur Phillip and the first boat people, there is no comparison. Those brave souls were doing the work of the dear baby, bringing civilization, Christianity, to pagan savages who still can't seem to appreciate the great blessings this act of kindness and Christian charity has brought them. And your religion is guiding your campaign to prevent domestic violence and sexual harassment? Very much so. With the blessing of the dear baby Jesus, we will ban milkshakes. I had a divine revelation that milkshakes are the root of all evil. Can I take this opportunity to warn young women, if a man offers to buy you a milkshake, run? Yes, yes, sensible advice. And how will you be celebrating May Day, Scummo? 
It is a tragedy. It is clearly the work of the evil one that workers are led by those doing the work of the evil one to believe that caring employers, who in turn do the work of the dear baby, are an evil force, that caring employers exploit them when without caring employers they wouldn't even have a job. They should be giving thanks to the dear baby Jesus and not worshipping at the shrine of the evil one. Uh, thank you, Scummo. Pleasure. Bless you. Well, it's always educating to hear the voice of reason and rationality, isn't it? The magnanimity of the government under the guidance of is obvious as they continue to act in the best interests of those evil workers despite that evil. Big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs has undergone a 100% conversion on the road too, discarding Milton Friedman and embracing John Maynard Keynes, preparing us for a big spending budget with lots of goodies being handed to lots of people, all because his only concern is to get workers into work, but not just into work, but highly paid work, an end to the slow wage growth which has so bewildered the great corporate boardrooms who, and we're not privy to their discussions, but who must sit around the table or this past year, presumably the computer screen, and repeat over and over and over, can someone please tell us how we can stop slow wages growth and pay workers a decent wage? Well, the week that was has been proffering what we think is a simple, obvious solution to low wages, but obviously we haven't got a clue. And we asked Josh how long his conversion from austerity to profligacy might last. Until, he looked very pleased with himself, after the next election. Thanks to Josh, back in the boardrooms, the concerns over the unemployment rate and slow wage growth may soon be over, allowing them to breathe a sigh of and pop the corks or enjoy a classic cognac or single malt scotch in their favourite armchair at the Melbourne Club. Sadly, a number of them were gasping for a decent cognac or single malt when some maverick suggested one solution to high unemployment was to employ people and one solution to slow wages growth was to pay them more. The week that was as discredited, clueless, simple, obvious solution. The responsible ones couldn't believe such economic heresy, economic ignorance. The wisest of the caring employers, which is all of them, know the solution to their desire to employ more ingrate, lazy, avaricious workers and to pay them more lies with those workers themselves. They are quite simply not productive enough. It's their own bloody fault. This industrial myopia must so distress the caring employers, the boardrooms, the bonhomery at the Melbourne Club. Let's hope those thoughtless workers use this May Day to contemplate how they can be more productive to wean themselves off the influence of the evil one. Scuttlebem said the Keeping Us Secure Department Secretary Make War Pizzullo's call to arms, beating the drums of war, we must preserve the peace by launching war on that which we cannot name. But let me assure you, listener, it is an atheistic communist enemy ruled by the evil one. Unlike our very, very, very close friend and protector, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, which epitomizes the peace, the love of the dear baby Jesus. Although it also loves wanting and demanding a peace of everything else. Anyway, Scuttle then said all that meant he was committed to the cause of peace.
scuttle them. We are scuttle them. If China attempts to reclaim Taiwan, which is, certainly was, part of China before the good, good arch-conservatives we backed fled there, and if the US of gets involved to prevent China reclaiming China, what has that to do with Trublawazi? I am committed to peace. And Trublawazi has a fine record of bringing peace to countries all over the world. And our very close friend, the US of, is committed to peace as a Christian, Jesus-loving country. So if it goes to war on behalf of the good people of Taiwan, then we must do what God wants. That is, obey the US of's orders. Although having said that, we are not necessarily talking about, uh, what country did you say? Uh, China. That's it. We're not necessarily talking about China. Well, that's a relief. Relief, too, for the merchants of death who must have been feeling the cold because they were seen rubbing their hands together. We, too, are committed to peace, they assured us. And we play a major role in providing governments and others with the means they need to maintain that peace. Uh, so you'll flog your products to the US of so they can maintain peace all over the US of the world. Certainly, we love peace. And you'll sell your peaceful products to the countries in which the US of fights to maintain peace. It is our duty, it is the duty of business not to take sides in these matters. Business must not get involved in politics. We make that clear every time we order government to meet with us. Former Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, and now Minister for Train Killing and Offence, Constable Peter Duffer, the giant mind behind the war is peace machine, got stuck into the Western Troublawazi Socialist Government for using a hotel for quarantine, stating it was not fit for purpose. Uh, then where should they be quarantined, Pete? Like, you know, hotels, which are like, you know, fit for purpose. Uh, but you just said a hotel was not fit for purpose. Other than, you know, like, that like hotel. Hotels have, you know, been really successful in, like, caring business class government, you know, like, states. There are pushes for your government to provide safe quarantine sites, such as maybe Christmas Island. Christmas Island is not, you know, fit for, like, purpose but it's fit for purpose for people fleeing persecution, true blue Aussie and US of invasions, for instance, or, or awaiting extradition. Like, yes. So what's the difference? True blue Aussies and other international visitors in, like, quarantine are, like, you know, human beings. Oh, well, that explains that. This ad on telly by one of the ubiquitous salt, sugar and fat junk food lots has consumers getting almost orgasmically excited over deep, fried donuts. It's as if they, the junk food lots, so despise anyone mad enough to eat their rubbish, they spend hours attempting to devise the most lethal, increasingly lethal products, if a deep-fried donut could be called a product. Footy fans who fall for the ad would be touch-and-go seeing out the game before the coronary disaster. Finally, House ad with Susan Duffy and you, Annie, promoting today's coverage, you'll be pleased to know, Annie, wins you the Understatement of the Year Award that evil workers must continue their evil fight, quote, because we haven't won yet. That's putting it mildly. Happy May Day. Good morning.
back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast on this happy May day. Absolutely. That yeah. was a nice piece, that music. Yeah, always nice to find a bit of, um, especially uh, it, it's such a strong commentary on um, uh, work in, you know, blood diamond mines in Congo. Um, just nice to find some real African roots in particular. Um, and speaking of roots, um, we're actually going to go to a little clipping from a documentary, which is well worth a watch. Um, it was released in 1979 and it's simply titled The Wobblies. Um, it is a documentary 
um, filled with some great people talking about the success of the industrial workers of the world in the early 20th century. Yeah, and we have to apologise because Don's unable to uh, talk to us today, so we're going to go to the Wobblies instead. What's your name? Sam Scarlett. What's your religion? The IWW. That ain't no religion. The only one I got. Who's your next of kin? I don't have any. Well, who's your best friend? Big Bill Haywood. He's in here with you. He's still my best friend. What's your nationality? None. Where is your home? Cook County Jail. Look, are you a citizen? No, I'm an industrial worker of the world. The IWW stood for Industrial Workers of the World. Work, good wages, and respect. That's what they wanted for the workers. To be people. Not nobody. At the turn of the century, America was changing rapidly from a basically rural society to an urban industrial one. The completion of the great railroads from coast to coast singled the end of the frontier. The population had increased five times from 12 million to 60 million. One of the striking features of the period was the rapid growth of the enormous corporations which began to control the basic industries. Largest among them, Rockefeller Standard Oil and Carnegie's U.S. Steel Corporation. They used to say about owning the factories, which I think would have been a nice thing to do. We would have all worked happy, got a little of the profits for ourselves, which would have been nice instead of one man or two. What was wrong about that? They didn't talk really bad. They were telling the truth. Who wouldn't like it like that? While the others are making millions and you're making nothing. Efficiency and control with the watchwords for the new employing class. This was evident in the introduction of the assembly line and time and motion study. Now, one of the events that uh, certainly struck a young man was the industrial warfare, the strife between capital and labor, and workers and employers. But unskilled labor had almost no representation whatever. AFL didn't take in unskilled workers. And they had no voice to speak for them. It was these conditions that were largely responsible for the founding of the industrial workers of the world. I remember reading of the founding convention of the industrial workers of the world, which took place in Chicago in 1905, and headed by men who were already well known through newspaper readers, Big Bill Haywood, for instance, of the Western Federation of Miners, and Eugene B. Debs, candidate for president on the Socialist Party ticket, and Mother Jones, and many others. Fellow workers, this is the Continental Congress of the working class. I don't give a snap of my fingers whether skilled workers join this union or not. We don't need them. 
There are 35 million workers in this country that aren't organized yet. What we want to establish at this time is an organization that will open wide its doors to every man or woman that earns his livelihood by brain or muscle. My dad warned me about him. He said, no, remember, he's a, he's a great speaker, an influential speaker, a good orator. But what he's talking about is just a dream. It can never happen. It'd be a good thing if it could, but it just can't happen. So it's just a dream. And I had a brother, Emmett, who ran away from home and joined the IWW in Kansas, and that's where I first heard of the IWW. Of course, in the papers in Missouri at that time, they built them up as a bunch of devils who were sabotaging the world. I tried to sign up in 1914, but I could never catch a delegate with any supplies. I tried again in 1915. Uh, this, I had been a member of the Socialist Party of America previous to this, and had taken in the Minot free speech fight. And there's where I first saw the IWW in action. And I asked them whether it would be possible for a person with my background to join the organization. And they said, well, you were indeed a most welcome fellow worker. Uh, anybody, who, anybody who wants to join and work with us is welcome. Well, that's when I joined the IWW in 1914 in the woods. The Cloquet Lumber Company, I was working for them. And they had maybe 30, 40 wobblies out in camp. And I looked them up and joined them. And he kind of surprised the job delegate there. He'd never heard of anybody come up and volunteer to join. <laughs> Well, we were on the, the farm, and conditions were just bad. My parents heard of Pennsylvania, and so to speak, why well, you could make up money out of the street. And he decided, you know, to come north. Getting jobs as far as the Negroes or black is concerned was pretty rough. And if a white came along, why, I didn't have no job. I had to go back to something else. The IWW was the only thing that was accepting Negro or black workers. With, you know, with, I mean, freely. The work was so rough, we had to use hand trucks, and two men would load that truck freight. And we'd have to truck it over very rough floors to the side of the ship to be loaded. We worked 10 hours. People were getting hurt, one after another. Just going to the hospital, we had no medical uh, safety rules or anything like that. When the contract ran out, we'd go in for a contract, nothing doing. We had to go out on strike. The results of that, while we were on strike, people were transported from different parts of the country to break strikes. Some would be having, you know, guns as same as they were the law, and they would be these vans going down. They would be escorted by police escorts on motorcycles. And a striker would have as much chance before the strike breakers as a rabbit would have before a gunner. The IWW was a 
was something for the working man. It didn't make any difference who you was, what kind of work you did. They was into, they was out to organize all working people. In addition to the large migrations from country to city and from south to the north, by the early part of the century, nearly 30 million immigrants from Eastern and Western Europe had helped swell the ranks of unskilled labor. The trip where we were in the steerage, big room, a lot of people there, all their belongings on the floor, little kids running around with the noise. Was, I was little, I was only five years old, but it was terrible. Many of these immigrants found their way to the textile mills of the Northeast, working under the worst imaginable conditions. Low wages, unsanitary housing, long hours, little education. One of the IWW's largest and most successful strikes broke out in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1912 among the workers in the woolen mills. I was on the spinning room, and this, this bunch, they come upstairs and uh, they stop the belt from the machine. They cut them, and uh, they told us to get, to get out and go home, so we stayed out. Washington Mill, we had the first mass meeting. We made him on the common, see? And he spoke to us and said to get together and all, and stay together, that we win eventually, see? Greek, Polish people, and Lithuanian, uh, Syrians, and Portuguese, uh, and then uh, Franco-Belgian, uh, Franco-American. And we form a general committee and a committee for all, each nationality. There were 24 nationalities in 1990. So that's uh, the way the strike began. In the good old picket line, in the good old picket line, the workers are from every place, from nearly every clime. The Greeks and Poles are out so strong and the Germans all the time. And we had two soup kitchen. And then we, we feed all the people who want to eat. And then we buy food and we distribute the food, the macaroni, beans, bread, and so on. And we give it to the people as much as we can. You understand? Dude, and that was my job, to take care of that. Oh, it was hard strike at all right. It was hard strike, you see. Well, you know, we had the militia come over. Our company of militia went down to Lawrence during the first days of the strike. Most of them had to leave Harvard to do it, but they rather enjoyed going down there to have a fling at these people. Orders were not to shoot until it was absolutely necessary, but then shoot to kill. 
Many heads were cracked open this first week, but not one dollar of damage was done to any of the mills guarded by the soldiers. The IWW has been accused of putting the women in the front. The truth is, the IWW does not keep them in the back, and they go to the front. Shall we still be slaves and work for wages? It is outrageous, has been for ages. This earth by right belongs to toilers and not to spoilers of liberty. But Haywood, he was a big man, and I can remember him up there in the common, and he, you know, beating his arms out and pounding his fist. I remember that very well. The IWW advocates violence of the most violent sort, violence that consists of keeping our mouths shut and our hands in our pockets. In doing this and staying on strike, we are committing the most violent of acts, cutting off our labor. Let them weave cloth with bayonets. And after that, about a couple of weeks afterwards, the mill owner gave up, gave up and we had the meeting with the secretary of the Manufacturer Association just about nine weeks after the strike began, and the strike, we settled up the strike. The, the business people of Lawrence gave us a banquet to the strike leader. Yeah, the, and I remembered we had a soup kitchen, a chicken soup, and that's a wonderful soup. And I, I still, and I'm making now myself. We like that sort of a chicken soup. Is that's everybody a, very happy? Oh, everybody, all the strike was happy. The strike was happy, and the community was happy too. That was all over, and it was a much better condition the city and after the strike. A year after the Lawrence strike, another strike broke out in Patterson, New Jersey, in the silk manufacturing center of the country. It was one of the girls, my girlfriend, that I had uh, met at a wobbly picnic. And uh, we both went out to look for a job. We would take jobs in unorganized factories, try to organize them. And of course, as soon as they found out, no one uh, suddenly, uh, they didn't know how it happened. We looked such innocent young girls that they never thought that we were capable of, <laughs> of even believing in a union. And we did. And conditions became worse and worse. And there was only one thing to do. You either had to just stop living or become a rebel. And that is when the IWW came in. Agitators. It's a bunch of agitators are in Patterson. Agitators. I said, they're not agitating us. They're just telling us the truth. I used to get mad. So on a Thursday, when the time had come up, we're supposed to go on a strike. The boss had come by me. He grabbed me by the neck. Said, Mike, if you don't cut it out, I'm going to throw you out the window. Then I said, listen, Pete, before you're going to throw me out the window, i got to get out through the door. Three 
No doubt as the women stood their ground against that first truck that rolled up to the picket line, they had some apprehension, but that was quickly to change. The first trucks that came that they were trying to stop going in, the trucks were TWU, the transport workers, they'd been winning pay rises and things. We said to them, go up and talk to the drivers, you know, explain why this is a picket, they can't go in. This huge truck in this little street in Brunswick coming up to the factory and he says, oh, no worries, mate, and turns the truck around and the women just, like, the the level of confidence just skyrocketed. And You're listening to 3CR. And you are, and we're coming to the end of Solidarity Breakfast on this May Day for 2021. Yeah, I- Fun show. So lovely. <laughs> it's yeah. such a shame that we don't get time for absolutely everything. But yeah, um, tell you what, though, it might be the end of Solidarity Breakfast, certainly not the end of May Day. We've got a ton of events coming up for today. So if you're looking to get out and attend something, um, we've got a great rap sheet. So the biggest one, at least in Melbourne, is at Bendigo, um, who we talked with David Fox a little bit earlier about. There is a breakfast happening at 10 a.m., which is a lovely time for a breakfast on a Saturday, let's be realistic. Um, And then afterwards at 10.45, there'll be a march. It is at Trades Hall, which is at 40 View Street in Bendigo. Um, It will close from 5 p.m., so I'm suspecting that there's going to be some speakers through the afternoon. We'll see. We've also got events at Newcastle, 10 a.m. in Gregson Park. Sydney at Prince Alfred Park in Parramatta at 10.30 a.m. There's also another event at Wonthaggy one at 11 a.m. There is a, a rally happening at the Mine Whistle in Apex Park on Murray Street, Wonthaggy, um, weather permitting, although it looks like it's going to be pretty good. Um, there is a lunch also at Wonthaggy, 12 midday. Um, with a celebration, with a meal at the Workers' Club. Um, There is a booking for this event in particular. It is run through the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union in West South Gippsland. So you can find that on their uh, appropriate Facebook page for that. Just search for Australian Unemployed Workers' Union West South Gippsland. In Adelaide at 1pm at the Maritime Museum, there's an event happening there, uh, which is run by the Maritime Union of Australia, South Australia branch, of course. Um, at Geelong in seven, sorry, 6.30 tonight, we've got the annual Green Left Dinner, which is happening at Geelong Trades Hall. So at 6.30, you can uh, grab a bite to eat with uh, the team that do Green Left. Second um, of May as well. There's a few small events. We've got some events happening at Fremantle at 10 a.m. Uh, there's a couple of May Day events happening through there. Um, there is also an 11 a.m. event at Melbourne Trades Hall. We've got a rally happening at March. Uh, sorry, a rally and March at 1 p.m. and speeches going on from 2 p.m. There's also events happening today at Trades Hall. That's uh, well worth mentioning. It looks like there's going to be a couple of speaks um, happening from um, Joe Toscano, uh, which we had chatted about earlier with um, his uh, anarchist walk. That'll be really lovely. But also uh, there's a lot of union organizing, and I'm suspecting that there'll there'll probably be um, a march or at least people to talk to throughout midday onwards. So feel free to come along to Trades Hall for that. There's also apparently an event happening in Brisbane on May the 3rd. We've yet to hear more details about that, but um, I guess keep an ear out, keep your radar on. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much it for the week, I guess. 
Lots to do. <laughs> yeah, lots to do. Um, uh, before we do go, uh, I'd like to uh, mention a series of books which will outline some elements of the uh, great uh, outline of the Wobblies that we just heard. Uh, John Dos Passos's trilogy. It's called the USA Trilogy. And it starts with uh, the 42nd Parallel, 1919, and Big Money. And it does a, a very interesting outline of that whole historical period, including uh, the effects of the Wobblies on working class consciousness. Uh, we're going to go out now because it's the finish of the program and we're going to finish with uh, a a rousing number. Yeah, very interesting piece from the Seekers, actually. Normally I'm not a fan of them, but um, probably one of the earliest Unions tracks I'd heard was We Shall Not Be Moved. Happy May Day, everyone. See you next week. Well, I'm on my way to heaven We shall not be moved On our way to heaven We shall not be moved Just like a tree That's standing by the Standing by the waterside, we shall not be moved. Well, we're on that road to freedom, we shall not be moved. On that road to freedom, we shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's standing by the waterside, we shall not be listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.